Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. I've got some great news and some not-so-great news for you today for Spirit in Action. The not-so-great part is that I have a cold, and you'll end up listening to my ersatz nasal sound on this interview. But the awesome news is that my guest is David Hartso, author of Waging Peace, Global Adventures of a Lifelong Activist, a truly wonderful book combining the stories and inspirations for a better world that David has lived out and been witness to. David has gone hopefully, surprisingly, and inspirationally into the crucial events of the past 60 years in the civil rights movement, across the Berlin Wall, working against nuclear weapons, traveling in solidarity with the people of Central America and Kosovo, and making himself available everywhere that people need compassion and support. He's been a founder of many organizations, including the Nonviolent Peace Force and World Beyond War. Let's hurry up and get David Hartso on the phone in California so we can share as many of the stories from Waging Peace as possible. David, how wonderful to have you here today for Spirit in Action. Well, it's good to be here. Hello to everyone. Actually, I wish you were here in Wisconsin so you could help me shovel the driveway. Uh, We've got a big driveway. (laughs) Well, if it didn't cost so much to get there, I'd be happy to help out. But you're living in California for some time now. I mean, you used to live in cooler climes. Yeah, I was born in Ohio and lived for a couple of years in Iowa. And then my growing up years after that was in Pennsylvania in a cooperative community outside of Philadelphia. A lot of wonderful travels in your book. And again, folks, we're interviewing David Hartso about his book, Waging Peace, Global Adventures of a Lifelong Activist. The thing I want to start with, though, is not you and your life, but your daughter and your son-in-law, because right towards the end of the book, you mentioned that she, he were Peace Corps volunteers in Togo, which is where I was in the Peace Corps. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) How exciting. What years were they there, and do you know what area of the country? Up in the north and east. Depongo or one of those places, Lama Kara, one of those things in the far northern. There's a place up there called Mongo, too. No, it's a very small village, Muslim village where she was living, mid-90s. And so I was there in the late 70s, and so I know the country has changed tremendously since then. So anyway, I'd love to have a little visit with her. I'm sure she'd love to talk with you. Again, you've got so many stories and so much life experience (laughs) that we didn't need to really bring in your daughter, but I love finding the connections. And I think your life was inspirational for both your kids to lead them to carry out world healing work as well. But you've encountered whole varieties of living situations with all your adventures across the globe and in the United States. Let's start with your childhood. Again, the subtitle for your book is Global Adventures of a Lifelong Activist. I find it very clear that you're an activist by the age of 15. What do you think really kicked off the direction of your life in activism? Well, it was a combination of things. Partly it was my family. My father was a pastor in the Midwest and supported conscientious objectors during the Second World War, which often wasn't that popular. <laughs> the congregations were looking for a red-blooded pastor who would support the war. 
So my first five years, we moved to a different small town most every year. So having, I say, I chose my parents well. It was partly their example, and then when I was just eight years old, my dad was asked by the American Friends Service Committee, uh, Quakers, to uh, go to Gaza. This was after the, the December 1948. There had just been the war between uh, Israel and the Arab countries, and there were just hundreds of thousands of refugees. And my dad had never been out of the country and was asked to go and be in charge of a refugee camp in Gaza, getting food and medicine to the people, tents. After talking with the family and talking with the church, he decided to go. And that had a very big impression on me, that he had given very good sermons on loving your neighbor and loving your enemy, and who is my neighbor? <laughs> but here he was willing to go to the other side of the world and uh, risk his life to try to get food and medicine and tents to people and families that were refugees from the war. So I'd say that had a very big impact. And then it was considered too dangerous and too expensive for our family to go. So we were refugees back in Ohio. But he wrote letters every week to both my brother and, and me, sharing the experiences that he was having there. So that was very inspiring. Then when I was 15, I suppose, my parents gave me the book by Gandhi, All Men Are Brothers, which I think really settled deep within me. <laughs> we are all brothers. We're all children of God, one human family. And we need to act on that belief. When I was 15, my dad took my brother and me down to Montgomery, Alabama during the Montgomery bus boycott. And I discovered not only segregation <laughs> firsthand, what, what that really meant in terms of people being forced to live as second-class citizens. But then under the leadership of Martin Luther King, responding to that not with violence, even when the black churches were bombed by some of the white racists, but of, of committing themselves to a, a nonviolent struggle for justice, even if it meant getting up an hour earlier in the morning to walk to work instead of riding the bus for over a year, participating in that nonviolent struggle till they were successful. So that was opened my eyes to the effectiveness and the power of nonviolent struggle and alternative means to address injustice and violence and war and that kind of stuff. Yeah, I can see by the age of 15, you're already on that direction. One of the stories you tell in Waging Peace, however, is when you're getting hit by some ice balls and yes. <laughs> your reaction is something different. And by the way, when I was in eighth grade, so I think I would have been a bit older, you were what, eight at the time that the ice ball thing happened, I think? Seven or eight, probably eight. In eighth grade, I, you know, I had not been raised to be a peacemaker, but I think there was something in my bones that was calling in that way. And I was walking with a friend at lunchtime after we'd eaten, we're walking around outside the school. We came around the corner and there was a, some guys there waiting to get my friend and one was holding him and one starts punching him. So what do I do? You know, I'm a, I have not been trained in nonviolence. You know, I knew I could jump in and start fighting too, or I could run and get help and be too late or whatever. So I, I took the guy who was actually holding him and I removed him. I said, you shouldn't be doing that. And he turned and he hit me and gave me a black eye. And I just looked at him and I said, you shouldn't be doing that either because that's just going to get you in more trouble. That's kind of silly. And I, my friend and I walked away and I think, and we did report them and all, but that kind of reaction and, and I think what you did with the ice ball, and I'd like you to share the story, I think there's something deep in your bones 
they get oriented in a certain direction, which is how you, I think you came to live a life of waging peace. Could you tell what happened with the ice balls and the kids that were throwing them at you? Sure. I should preface this by saying my dad, I thought, gave great sermons, <laughs> including uh, loving your enemy and love those who hate us. One day I was walking home from school through a park, and uh, these guys who I knew started throwing ice balls at me. I was just flabbergasted. Why are they doing this? I certainly had no hatred toward them, or why in the world should I be fighting them, or why are they fighting me? I remembered my dad's sermon (laughs) from the previous Sunday, and I thought, well, I'll try it out. And I just said, I don't have anything against you guys. I'd just like to be friends. They threw a few more ice balls and then quit, and they ended up being good friends. So that, that was an early experience. These things that Jesus taught, these things that we believe are, are morally right, etc., they're not just something that is the, quote, proper thing to do, but it's probably the most effective thing we can do as well. Didn't you give one of them a gift? I recall something from the book about that, right? Yeah. Our family had been out in New Mexico visiting my uncle previous summer, so we had a letter opener from Native Americans that we had bought, and it had some kind of a jewel on it, and it was my most valued possession. I ended up giving it to the leader of this gang as a a symbol of my trying to be friends (laughs) rather than wanting to be enemies, and I remember my mother was quite upset that I'd given this very uh, (laughs) precious little instrument away rather than keeping it for my future (laughs) use. I think it's so important. People often think when you talk about nonviolent kind of witness that you've lived around the world in really dangerous places, when that is their their first thought, it's pretty frightening. It's like, no, I can't do that. But there's many steps that get you to it. And sometimes it's how you react when someone hits you with an ice ball and it progresses from there. Mm-hmm. I think the stories that you share in Waging Peace are just so indicative of what it takes to get to this place of being of real service or really loving everyone in the world and being able to live that out. So few people do that, but it comes by steps. One of the things that I was very impressed by in the book was, well, I just have to ask the question this way. Exactly how disappointed was your mother when you said you were going to go to Howard University instead of the place she wanted you to go? She was very disappointed. I had been accepted into Swarthmore College, just one of the top colleges in the country, and she wanted her son, I mean, I guess all mothers think their son deserves the very, very best. She just felt I I should go to Swarthmore and not sacrifice my own education for my beliefs. And I actually did felt a spiritual calling. I heard God telling me, (laughs) go to Howard University while I was fasting on Hiroshima Day, the year after I graduated from high school. And I really felt I needed to do that, but at her insistence, or her strong encouragement, I guess I should say, I put it off for one year. I did go to Swarthmore one year, but then did transfer to Howard University because I I heard that it was a primarily black university that was looking for whites to help integrate it. And instead of... uh, trying to encourage Swarthmore College to accept more black students, I thought, well, I should just practice what I'm preaching. So my mother did learn to appreciate my deciding to go to Howard, and that I was following my leading, what God was telling me to do. I think she 
that was even more important to her than her son getting the very best academic education he could. I have the sense that attending Howard really helped accelerate your involvement with nonviolence. Is that how it looked from the inside for you? Uh, Yes, very, very much. I happened to be at Howard University in the spring of 1960 when the four African-American students tried to go and get something to eat at a uh, Woolworths drugstore, and instead of getting something to eat, they were arrested and put in jail. That was kind of a spark that encouraged African-American students all over the South to challenge segregation in their own communities. At Howard University, we found out that although Washington, D.C. was desegregated, that everything in both Maryland and Virginia surrounding Washington was still deeply segregated. Even African ambassadors at the U.N. could not stop to get something to eat along the main highway on the way to Washington, D.C. So we began going to Maryland to get something to eat on Saturday mornings on the weekends. And instead of getting something to eat, we'd be arrested and thrown in jail. And instead of feeling sorry for ourselves, we sang freedom songs and got to know each other at a a deeper level and realizing that there's people all over the South that are doing what we're doing. So we felt a spirit of community that was very strong. Well, the, the state of Virginia had passed a law that spring saying anybody that challenged segregation there could get a six month in prison and a $500 fine. So most of that spring, we kept going to Maryland. <laughs> but by June, nobody had challenged that segregation law in Virginia, and we really felt that somebody had to. So we did some additional nonviolent training. The, the American Nazi Party had made threats of violence against anybody that challenged segregation in Virginia and got our courage up and went across the bridge into Virginia to a people's drugstore, so-called people's drugstore. I sat down, there were, I think, about seven of us. And instead of uh, giving us something to eat, the owner closed the lunch counter so that we were not going to get anything to eat or drink. But he also did, decided he didn't want to arrest us because he didn't want the publicity. We sat there for two days, waiting for something to eat. (laughs) And it was the most challenging two days of my life. People came up and put lit cigarettes down our shirts. People spat at us. They hurled every epithet you can think of at us. They punched us in the stomach so hard we would fall on the floor and then kick us. The American Nazi Party did come, you know, with their swastikas and (laughs) making all kinds of threats. And toward the end of the second day, a guy came up from behind me. I was reading the New Testament, the Sermon on the Mount, loving your enemies and doing good to those who hate you. I heard this guy come up from behind me, and he says, if you don't get out of this store in two seconds, I'm going to stab this through your heart. And in his hand was a switchblade. And I realized I had two seconds to decide, (laughs) do I really believe in nonviolence or is there some better way to deal with this guy? And we'd had a lot of practice because each time something would happen, we would try to respond in a nonviolent, loving way. And I just looked at him in the eyes and I said, well, friend, do what you believe is right, but I'll still try to love you. And his face that was contorted with hatred and his hand uh, with the knife was half an inch from my heart. All of a sudden, his hand began to, to fall, his jaw began to drop, and he left the store which for a young 20-year-old 
was a very, very <laughs> powerful experience that somehow my reaching out to his humanity had touched something in him. He found his humanity and was unable to carry out his threat to kill me or to punch his, uh, punch his knife uh, into my heart. Then we did something even more challenging. There were 500 people outside the store uh, been in the front page of the paper and with rocks and threatening violence and we went to the front door of this drugstore and made a statement appealing to religious and community leaders of Arlington to use their influence to get the eating facilities open to everyone and then this was the hard part we said if nothing changes within a week we'll be back and just the idea of going back and doing this again <laughs> was pretty hard <laughs> Some friendly media people got us out of there alive, and we went back to Howard and literally shook for six days whether we had the courage to go back and do this again. And on the sixth day, we got a phone call that the religious and community leaders had met with the business leaders, the store restaurant owners, and got a commitment to open the eating facilities to everyone within 10 days. So I like to think this was the most important lesson of my life that when something terrible is happening, that instead of cursing the television or the president or war, injustice, violence, segregation, you find some other people that believe as deeply as you do about something, get some nonviolence training, and go out and challenge that violence, that injustice. That's really been what most of my life has been, experimenting with the power of nonviolent action to challenge injustice and violence and war that our country, our society seems addicted to. So I am grateful that I went to Howard. I, I don't think I would have had that experience if I'd stayed at Swarthmore. Yeah, these decisions we make that lead us down the road are so impressive. And one of the things that I would note about what you just said is when you were considering those six days, whether you're going to go back, you were facing fear. And I think that one of the most important things we can do is sit with our fear and just watch it for a while, pray about it. We can get ready to face our fear and then still move forward. So often when I've done that, I've found the best outcomes resulting from that. But so often we try and shut down, you know, if, if we have fear, we, <laughs> in our materialist society, there's always something, you know, if you're feeling bad, take a drink or do something, buy something, you know, there's a, a solution other than just staying with the fear and then finding where the next step in your life is. I think that's the way Hitler got away with what he did in Germany. You know, people were afraid to speak out. Uh, that's the reason I think so many people, even though they don't believe that killing people is a good idea, <laughs> it's certainly not something they've been taught or something they want to believe about themselves, but are willing to uh, be silent while wars are fought in our names and with our tax dollars. And that's the reason people pay their taxes you know, the federal taxes, even though at least 50% of it goes uh, for wars and killing people. It's the reason people put up with segregation for so long. I mean, I think even blacks felt, well, you know, they may lynch us, <laughs> which was true. But people get put in their place. And too often, I think, people have a sense, well, to be a good American, you just agree with what the government is telling you to do and what to believe. I think your point, overcoming our fear 
is so important if we're to really create a world where we can all live as brothers and sisters and live in what uh, Martin Luther King called the beloved community. And that's what David Hartzell has spent a lifetime working on. The full stories, it's, it's beautiful stories, and they really get you in touch with what happens, folks. So please, I want to strongly recommend that you get the book, Waging Peace, Global Adventures of a Lifelong Activist by David Hartzell. And it's co-written, by the way, by Joyce Holliday. And I'll say a little bit more about that in a moment. But first, I want to make sure everybody knows you're listening to Spirit in Action. NorthernSpiritRadio.org is our website where you'll find links to our guests. There's uh, probably a hundred links I could put up for David Hartsoe, including his very strong current involvement with World Beyond War. Dot org. Those links are on Northern Spirit Radio for David and for all of our previous guests the last 14 and a half years. There's the stations across the nation, 40 plus some of them, where our programs are carried. You'll have an opportunity there to post comments. And I really want to encourage you to do this. Let me say it very clearly. Please come to northernspiritradio.org and post a comment on and rate this program and the other programs that you listen to. It's so important to have two-way communication, and you can do your part by visiting our site. There's also a place to donate. Uh, Click on the Donate button. You can send a check in the mail, or 3% or so of your donation will come if you contribute via our site, via PayPal. In any case, I want to strongly urge you to support your local media, in particular your local community radio stations, the kind of folks who carry these programs, because they provide a slice of news and music that you get just nowhere else. Mainstream media is owned... 90% of it is owned by just six corporations, which means that there's a very narrow funnel which is controlling how much news you get, and your community radio station goes well beyond that. So please start by supporting them, and then you help out Northern Spirit Radio if you can. But mainly, I want to get back to David Hartzell, and I want to mention again, you have a co-author for this, Joyce Holliday. Is that, she's a ghostwriter. Her stories I didn't see featured in here. How do you know Joyce? Joyce was one of the founders of Sojourners Magazine. She actually had co-written a couple other books with people I knew, including Norman Morrison and Don Mosley. The stories are all my book. I'm all, and it's my life, but I, I think she was very helpful in helping weave uh, the stories together. It's, it is my book, and she has helped, uh, she's a, a better writer <laughs> in terms of <laughs> helping everything fit together, but it was wonderful working with her. And she's co-pastor at Circle of Mercy in Asheville, North Carolina, we should mention, too. She was. She is now living up in Vermont. Oh, because she wanted to shovel more snow like me. That's good. I think she likes snow. (laughs) (laughs) She's got her own inspirational stories and witness and words to share, too. But I so appreciate that she worked with you, David, on getting this out. It's such a valuable story. And again, everybody should get a copy and share it with your friends. What a wonderful way to start a new year. Another pivotal point from my point of view when I was reading your story was the time you spent in Berlin. And for those who are significantly younger than you, and I'm a bit younger than you, but 
people who are significantly younger than me, 1959, 1969-1960-is-such-a-forehand-time-the-cold-war-is-raging-Russia-is-our-ultimate-enemy-the-Soviet-Union-we-have-to-arm-and-build-as-many-nuclear-missiles-as-testing-going-on-all-over-and-you-
that wanted to live in peace. They'd lost 20 million of their citizens in the Second World War. No way did they want war. So I actually came back after that year in Berlin and that first camping trip in the Soviet Union in 61 and just traveled around as many churches and Kiwanis clubs and Lions groups and students, universities, trying to share some of those experiences that I'd had, trying to help other Americans realize, as I had come to realize, that, gee whiz, we're one human family and why are we preparing to, <laughs> to destroy one another and, and ourselves by a nuclear war? And folks, there's considerable more detail to these stories. Uh, the camping, is, it's just amazing to me what you did there, David, is all in David Hartzell's book, Waging Peace, Global Adventures of a Lifelong Activist. Because I'm 65, in 1961, I would have been seven years old, right? And Young guy. <laughs> young guy, right. And I'm aware of a lot of the history of that time, you know, when President Kennedy got elected in November of 1960, and the world's changing, the Peace Corps is starting, the near, you know, just seconds from nuclear annihilation of the planet that happened in 1962. All of this is part of the history I grew up knowing. Mm-hmm. Still, I could never have imagined what what you said. I mean, you know, you go, you get to go on a camping trip for extended period, just driving on your own in the Soviet Union and to Russia. That is so unthinkable from everything that we've been taught. And yet, you went back, I think, a year later with another group of people doing the same kind of trip. Yeah, I led three different groups of students in the early sixties. The second group, I had actually demonstrated, or actually, I shouldn't say, dem- I, it, was a dem- it was seen as a demonstration. We were praying for an end of nuclear bomb testing in front of the White House with several other Quakers and were arrested for doing that. We All we did was sitting in silent prayer with a sign saying, bomb tests kill people, which they were. And later that summer, I was taking another group. This time there were 18 students and a couple of VW buses. We were talking as Russians about all kinds of things, but among other things about our, the nuclear bomb tests. Russians, like Americans, were pretty convinced that their bomb tests were, were necessary to, uh, try to try to protect them from this evil United States. So we finally decided, uh, two of us on the group, uh, that we needed to demonstrate against the Russian bomb tests while we're there. And so in Red Square, right outside the Kremlin, we made signs that said in Russian, bomb tests kill people, and uh, stood in silent prayer calling for an end to nuclear bomb tests. So anyway, we were giving out leaflets uh, explaining in, in Russian why we were doing what we're doing. And people gathered around reading the leaflets and said, why are you demonstrating against our peaceful nuclear bomb tests? Why don't you go home and demonstrate in the United States? That's where you need it. And we said, well, we did demonstrate in the United States. They told us to go to Russia. <laughs> but uh, And then police came and said, uh, you can get 20 years in prison for demonstrating against our peaceful bomb tests. We said something to the effect, well, thank you for warning us, but if we continue this nuclear arms race, we could all be dead from nuclear war, and that would be much more terrible than 20 years in prison. 
and told them that we'd uh, been arrested in front of the White House uh, praying for an end to our nuclear bomb tests. And they were kind of surprised about that response and said, well, we've got to go and talk with our superiors. And they left and uh, didn't come back. <laughs> so we went that evening. We went had dinner at our campsite and <laughs> went on with our journey. That's such an amazing story. And one of the things that I admired about that story when you told it, David, in the book, you really were willing to speak to both sides, and you're not making anyone the enemy, but you're carrying your witness in all directions. It's not just that you oppose what the United States does. Uh, sometimes uh, left-leaning people in this country shout down everybody who isn't with their program in our government, but then say, well, I can't criticize people in another country. And it's not really about criticizing. It's really about upholding what the future is we want for each other. But that so powerfully brought home to me that you were willing to face the fear of our own government and the fear of other governments. There's a lot of fears that you have to release in order to live a life of witness as you have and as you tell of in Waging Peace. I think it would be a real pity if I did not move you forward to where we are today. But, you know, there's so many vital efforts that you've been part of. And David, not just you, David Hartzell, but all of the people you've worked with. And I've interviewed before Mel Duncan, and you probably know who Rita Webb is because of her time working in Sri Lanka. Yes, very much. She's from here in Eau Claire, where I live. Oh, great. And maybe you even know Jill Sternberg, who was working in East Timor. And there's any number of people who I've interviewed over the 14 and a half years I've been doing this who have touched one way or another with your work, including with worldbeyondwar.org and that people should learn about. So I'm going to just say overview you were involved with nuclear weapons production. You're opposing that. There's some wonderful stories in the book about the efforts that you went to to stop the weapons that were flowing to support oppressive governments and military efforts in Central America. What happened with you and Brian Wilson is clearly one of the pivotal moments so often, you got off, shall we say, relatively lucky. You got hit, but you didn't get... <laughs> I'm still alive. You're still alive, right. But with Brian Wilson, it was much closer to that line. Could you say a little bit about what you were doing and what happened with Brian? Brian had been in Vietnam and realized that that war was based on lies. Part of his job was going into uh, villages after the bombing to see how successful it had been. And in village after village, he would see mostly women and children, old people, dead and burned by napalm. And he came back a changed man, but then went to Central America with a group of other veterans and saw the same thing happening again, <laughs> again with American weapons and napalm and so forth. And he came back to San Francisco, where both of us were living at that time, and said, David, we've got to do something much, much more to try to stop this madness. This is in the 1980s when the U.S. was supporting and uh, funding and arming the wars in Nicaragua and El Salvador and Guatemala. So we did a little research and found that uh, there was a naval weapons station at Concord, California, where each week shiploads of bombs and munitions were going, uh, leaving for Central America. 
And so we we went out to look at the situation, and on one hillside was all these bunkers filled with bombs and munitions. And then they would come by train or truck down across a public road to the piers where they were loaded in, into ships. And we said, this is an opportunity actually to put our bodies between these bombs and the people that are going to get killed in Central America. So we, again, like in the, back in the sit-in, <laughs> we did some nonviolent training and also just try to prepare ourselves psychologically and spiritually. I mean, a big heavy-duty train with boxcars of munitions is uh, more heavy-duty than a guy with a knife, <laughs> and are much heavier. So we realized that you know, potentially it was risking our lives to try to do this. But Brian had written a letter to the commander of... Brian has asked Brian Wilson, not the uh, movie star, but Vietnam veteran, had written a, to the commander of the base saying something quite profound. He said, our lives are not worth more than the people in Central America, and their lives are not worth less than ours, which to me is a very radical way of looking at the world because so often in the United States, I think we are taught to believe that we're somehow more important, you know. And if our oil happens to be under their sand, you know, it's our oil, et cetera. And, of course, that's what's happening today in Syria. But at any rate, so we started blocking trains and trucks the summer of 1987 and were arrested each time we would uh, block but Brian had decided that starting September 1st, he and other veterans were going to start a 40-day fast on the tracks and said to the uh, Naval Weapons Station, you have three choices. You can stop the trains and arrest us. That's what we want you, we want you to do is to, to stop the trains. That's the first choice. The second, if you arrest us, we want you to know that the moment we were released from jail, we'll be going back to the tracks. And the third choice is you can run over us if that's what you decide you have to do. And we never guessed that what they would decide would be to run over our demonstration. And I was knocked down, but Brian was uh, run over by the train that cut off both his legs and a big hole in his head. Obviously, what the government was saying was, we have a war to fight and uh, you guys are in the way. And I think what they were hoping was uh, this would scare us enough that uh, we decide, well, <laughs> they're going to have to keep killing people and uh, there's nothing we can do about it. But instead, word went out about what we were doing there, and we ended up blocking every train for over two years. Some days they would have to arrest two busloads of us before they could uh, get the trains uh, and the munitions through. I, together with a couple others, had our arms broken later that fall when they said, if you don't move, we're going to uh, arrest you. And I said, we'll be happy to move when we stop uh, shipping arms to kill people in Central America. And with that, the uh, sheriff's deputy began twisting my arm, and when it got so powerful, uh, so strong, I had to start walking away with him. Then he gave another twist to my arm and broke it, but at any rate, so we <laughs> we had overcome our fear, but we're willing to pay that price. But 
I think it was a very powerful message to people in Central America, people in the United States, people in the military. Here were uh, Americans that cared enough about the suffering and the death of people thousands of miles away that we're willing to risk our lives to try to stop this. And it was also, I think, inspiring. And we know that some of the soldiers actually that were part of the military base uh, resigned their job rather than continuing to arrest us. Brian has gone on, I mean, just all around the world. There are people that are so inspired that they're Americans that understand their suffering, their pain, so much they're willing to risk their lives to try to, to stop this. You know, I don't find it surprising that people in other countries who are being beleaguered by our country, oppressed by, killed by our country, I'm not surprised that they feel thankful and connected that you're trying to stop our country from doing that. The thing that is especially heartening to me is those stories that you include in the book where you tell of the people within the apparatus who get transformed by it, the people on on the giant ships that you're blocking with your little canoes, or you tell one story where your mother was part of a witness by a factory there where they're producing or shipping weapons, where she's been there week after week without ever knowing that the people on the base were being affected for sure pro or con. But then what happened in her case? Could you could you mention that specific situation with your mother? Yes. This is way back in 1959 at Fort Detrick, a, a germ warfare plant north of Washington, D.C., where Quakers and others uh, began what they called the uh, prayer and conscience vigil, just vigiling in silent prayer outside this place that the United States was creating germ warfare. My understanding is three ounces of this could kill everyone in the world if it was spread around the world. The workers were given orders not to take leaflets, not to look at these people, but just to drive straight into the base. My mom and others, my mom was a school teacher, so she would be, was there during their summer vacation. They would brave the tremendous heat <laughs> of Washington summers out there in the blazing sun, not knowing if ever they would make any difference. My folks moved to Oregon about 10 years later, and my mom was in a bookstore one day, and a, a guy came up to her and said, were you in that vigil at Fort Detrick 10 years ago? And she said, yes. And he said, well, I, I just want you to know that I worked on that base at that time, and it was because of you and the other people there that I resigned my job. And here, 10 years later, he was not even supposed to have seen this face. He was supposed to be looking straight forward. He remembered the face, and 3,000 miles away, 10 years later, he, he remembered this face and had to tell my mom, it was because of you and the other folks there that I resigned my job. Part of the moral of that story for me is we never know what little thing that we do can, like throwing a pebble into the, the pond, the ripples go out far and wide. We never know how together the things that we do can make a difference. That story about my mom and the worker at Fort Dietrich really brings that home in a very powerful way for me. Well, that moral and that story and so many others are in the book Waging Peace. 
Global Adventures of a Lifelong Activist, and that lifelong activist is here with us today for Spirit in Action, David Hartso. There are so many stories, folks. You really pick up the book, go through it. You'll be tantalized. You'll be inspired. You'll cry with situations where there's so much suffering in the world. But I think that the antidote to that kind of sadness is to actually be doing something about it. And of course, that's what you've been doing for your life, David. And you've done it in helping create a number of organizations. I'd like to say before we go, at least a few words about the Nonviolent Peace Force. As I mentioned, I did interview Mel Duncan before and Rita Webb, who's from here in Eau Claire, was part of that work in Sri Lanka, and there's so much more that continues to expand. I have a feeling there's relatively few people who have an idea of the important work being done right now by the Nonviolent Peace Force in several countries across the world. Could you mention a little bit of its genesis and, and how it works? Well, I worked in Kosovo between 96 and 98 and had been there to support the nonviolent movement against the Serbian repression of the Albanian-speaking community. People there had said to me, David, this is an explosion waiting to happen. We've got to engage in more active nonviolent struggle to try to waken up world public opinion before this explodes into violence, similar to what happened with South Africa in ending apartheid. And, uh, David, can you find the nonviolent people to come and be present with us to help make it safer for us to do this, this nonviolent action ourselves? Because they were already resisting nonviolently, not through arms or military in any way. So I went speaking and uh, writing articles in, in both in Europe and the United States saying exactly what I'd heard that they wanted to engage in more active nonviolent resistance but needed international nonviolent people to come and be present. And most people said, oh, we're too busy. We have other commitments, jobs, school, family, etc. Sounds very important, but we can't do this. So I just had five people when we went back when kind of the more active nonviolent resistance was starting, which was, you know, a drop in the bucket compared to what was needed. And then President Clinton, who was president at the time, said, well, there's, there's ethnic cleansing happening in Kosovo. We have two choices. We can do nothing and look the other way, or we can go in and start bombing. And for those of us that have been in Kosovo, we knew there was a third alternative, and that was <laughs> supporting the nonviolent movement there. So when I met Mel Duncan in the Hague Appeal for Peace Conference, 99, a little later that year, we both realized this is not acceptable for the American government to see the choices to do when we see something that's wrong or unjust <laughs> or to either look the other way and do nothing or to go in and start bombing people. So we committed ourselves together with other people that were there to starting the Nonviolent Peace Force with the vision of uh, recruiting and training hundreds and eventually thousands of trained nonviolent peacemakers that can go into conflict areas at the invitation of local peacemakers and help provide the space to protect local peacemakers, human rights workers, and civilian populations who are the people that are suffering most from every war. 
So it's grown from uh, just a few people uh, when Rita Webb was a part there back in, I guess, the early 2000s to uh, now there's uh, hundreds of people in, I think, four or five different conflict areas around the world. At the United Nations, they're beginning to understand that there is an alternative to armed intervention, and our UN agencies are actually giving money and are helping train their people in the unarmed civilian protection. So I, I, our vision and our goal is that the world can understand there are alternatives to war and militarism and <laughs> nuclear weapons as a way of uh, resolving conflicts. I think uh, this is 10 years later, well, more than 10 years later now. I think the world is beginning to see there is an alternative. And as probably your listeners also know from Erica Chenoweth and Maria Stefan, their book, Why Civil Resistance, who have studied hundreds of violent and nonviolent movements over the last hundred years, that the nonviolent movements have been over twice as successful as the violent movements and much less likely to revert to civil war or dictatorship after you know, major struggles. So there, uh, this nonviolence is a more effective way of resolving conflict. We've looked at wars, <laughs> I mean, uh, all the wars in the last many, many, many decades. Millions of civilians get killed. Trillions of dollars are wasted. But nothing gets resolved. We get now what we've got is endless wars and endless numbers of civilians getting killed. And it's 80% of the people are civilians now that are killed in these wars. That's not working, in addition to being immoral. We are learning that nonviolence, and this is the most hopeful thing I think we've got going for us, people over the world are learning the power of nonviolent struggle and nonviolent means of resolving conflict. And we just need to help our country learn that as well. The other group that I've co-founded is World Beyond War. And again, I think a lot of people in the peace movement think that we're kind of in the small minority, <laughs> you know, crying out in the wilderness. Well, in fact, I think 95% of the people in the world want peace. And we're the massive world's majority. And we've also discovered the power of nonviolence. Governments cannot continue to operate if the people uh, cooperate. And if our government continues to say, well, we've got to fight endless wars, we've got to spend a trillion dollars a year on uh, military defense and building better nuclear weapons, etc. If the American people were to say, we're not going to put up with that anymore, we're going to go on general strike, we're not going to pay for these wars, etc., we'd have to stop those wars. Well, through World Beyond War, which is active in over 150 countries around the world, we're discovering we are the world's massive majority, and we need to organize to help make that happen. So I would also encourage people to look at the worldbeyondwar.org website, sign the Declaration of Peace, and become, there are actually courses in how to become more actively involved in uh, helping end all wars. We can... There's a divestment campaign where people are divesting from all companies that are involved in war making. There's shutting down the military bases around the world, etc. 
and that is just scratching the surface. There's a whole <laughs> bunch of resources at the end of David Hartzell's book, Waging Peace, Global Adventures of a Lifelong Activist. There's principles for nonviolence. There's how you train yourself. There's resources. You can see the video of Force More Powerful. You can, in so many ways, prepare those steps in life that you can read in David's story as he goes through his life and becomes equipped to be a lifelong activist in the way that he has. Again, we haven't talked about the Middle East. We haven't talked about so many areas. Uh, we've only scratched the surface about Kosovo and what you did there. And there's so many other areas. The stories are rich, folks. And the principles are clear, not because it's a lecture about the principles, but because they've been lived out in the life of David and so many other wonderful activists. I want to mention the foreword is by John Deere, and introduction to the book is by George Lakey, who I've had as guests for a number of times. And the group Training for Change, which he helped to found, is such a wonderful group. You should learn about that. And the afterword by Ken Budigan will further inspire you. So David isn't doing this alone, but he's certainly been at the center of it and been on the front lines of nonviolent activism for so many decades that we can't help but be inspired by this work. And David, whether it's through Beyond War, Nonviolent Peace Force, or all these other places that I'll try and have linked on NorthernSpiritRadio.org, you've set up the infrastructure, you've given the inspiration to help make the world a better place. And I can't help but being supremely grateful that you followed the lead of the Spirit in carrying out this work. Thank you so much for doing that and for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Well, thank you, Mark. It's very good to be with you. And uh, the book is available from PM Press or from Amazon or your local publisher. I really do think that uh, the sense of people being overwhelmed <laughs> and feeling powerless in the face of uh, the endless wars and the violence and injustice, and I think there is hope, and we can really make a difference, and together, as we said in the Civil Rights Movement, we shall overcome. With your help, with that of the Spirit, and by all joining together, holding hands, yes, we shall overcome. Thank you so much, David. Thank you, Mark. And folks, just remember that you can find links to all the groups and the link to the book, Waging Peace, Global Adventures of a Lifelong Activist. It's all there on northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for putting up with my cold-laden voice, and we'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, we will move this world along, and our lives will feel the echo.